Hello, and welcome to the Pretty Pixels podcast. I am your humble host, Joey. And I'm your host, Tab, and I'm not going to have anything else. I'm just going to leave that. <laughs> gotcha. Um, how are you? How are you doing today? It's beginning warm out. Uh, still, we're still in the throes out. of the end of the semester, so I think we're both still a little busy and yes. overwhelmed. But but how are you doing? Dazed and confused. <laughs> yeah, a little dazed. I'm, I'm doing well. It's uh, finals week, so yeah. you know lots of grading and emails to address, and you know that that sort of thing. But that actually, I um, I'm I'm slightly proud. Uh, for myself that I um, I tackled a ton of grading last week and so that's made this week a little bit lighter and so I'm hoping to have everything wrapped up final grade submitted Sunday that is awesome I am still grading so I have um, I my students have their I, I pushed my my due date back to tonight at midnight so I still have a fair bit of grading to get through but the end is definitely in sight, and then we have a lot of cool games coming up this summer, so yeah. so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, what are we talking about today? Today, we are going to be talking about our dissertations. Yeah, let's. we're going to, in our, in our feature, we're going to walk through kind yeah. of our thought process, how we came up with the ideas for our dissertations. Mm -hmm. um, for non-academic people, we'll explain what a dissertation is, because I think both of us get that from family members and stuff, and it's... Oh, yeah. It's kind of hard to explain to to people who aren't familiar with academia. Well, and I wasn't entirely sure what a dissertation was before I started one. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm still not quite sure what a dissertation <laughs> yeah, right, is. Right, right. Um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll be talking about that uh, before we get there. Any any news? Um, the, the thing that jumped out to me, not to not to jump into too quick, but uh, both Sony and Microsoft reported their recent financials mm -hmm. um, via gamesindustry.biz. And I thought the thing that jumped out to me was, of course, like this is a, a normal part of the business and this gets reported widely, particularly after new consoles launch as they have. Um, and I know you and I have both sort of complained or or made fun of console wars before. Mm -hmm. Neither one of us are eager to take sides or anything like that shouldn't have even mentioned it <laughs> well but when i was a when i was a teenager i was in i was all in i was like i had my sides and i went from being a nintendo fanboy to a playstation fanboy to a microsoft fanboy and then it just got to when i was somewhere in that microsoft generation i was like this is so stupid like i always want to have all of the games if i can mm -hmm. if i have the money and yeah. so, like, why do we prioritize? But I, I know that there are reasons behind it. A lot of it has to do with finances. Like, when you're young, especially, and you can only afford that one system, yeah. you want to defend it. You don't want to feel bad about your purchase. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, this is the only console that you get to have. And so um, I think sometimes that just comes out as attacking the other side. Mm -hmm. But at some point, I kind of thought, like, surely as gamers, as a community, we're over that. Like, we've reached a point where we've seen how stupid and how silly and immature that is. No. But we haven't. It still goes on. If you pop into okay. any, any like, comment section on something, mm -hmm. it's there. If Sony is like, we can't, you know, or if, like, there's this, this new game that, that Microsoft came out with, like, when Halo comes out, and it's a huge success and everyone loves it, if you pop into that comment section, there's going to be Sony fanboys being like, yeah, it's no God of War, it's no this, it's no that, and vice versa, and it's so frustrating. 
And so when I read these financials, I was like, I can't help but every time I see something like this here, it's like not to not to make light of PTSD, but it's it's like, you know, console wars, PTSD Mm. or some kind of like residual. Again, not not I'm not being serious about that. It's not it's not really like trauma, but um, I can't help but hear these echoes of like these past battles in my head of like arguing with people because. Um, so let me just share the numbers. So Sony, um, the PlayStation 5 has shipped over 7.8 million units, which is incredibly mm-hmm. impressive. Um, they've shipped over 338.9 million games, 5.8 or 58.4 million of those uh, being first party games. Mm-hmm. Um, that's up 276 or the, sorry, that's up from 276.1 million right, right. from last year. So uh that's which is a, significant i mean yeah absolutely their games and network division under which playstation falls made 24.8 billion dollars up 34 so percent and so sony's doing really well microsoft yeah. is also doing well but the way mm-hmm. that they reported their numbers is slightly different so microsoft's yes. game division jumped 50 percent you know and of course as a as I can see a fanboy saying, ah, see, Microsoft is doing better because their games division jumped 50% and mm-hmm. Sony's only jumped 34%. But Microsoft um, reports that they their uh, personal computer computing division under which Xbox falls, uh, their revenue was up 19% to $13 billion. And so if we look at that $13 billion versus Sony's... 24.8 billion suddenly there's a number to compare um but they talk about their hardware this is where, where i think it gets interesting they said their hardware sales were up 232 percent but they didn't mm. give a number for how many xbox series x or series s right. they've sold so i think this is where so number one both companies are doing great i think both companies should be applauded mm-hmm. i think that's really exciting for both fan bases but this is where you get the console war thing the 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 way that i'm trying to tie this into console wars is like microsoft has not released numbers as far as i can tell for their hardware sales and usually that means that they're not competing with the other side you know what i mean if they were they would be saying oh well you sold 7.8 million well we sold this many right so i'm curious about that like i don't know if anyone's figured of like maybe they looked back at the math and said but Will Microsoft we ever get definitive numbers or I think sometimes you, know? you can work that out because you can look mm-hmm. at the last time they did report numbers and then you can look at the percentages they've reported since and say, well, that sem- that that semester, that quarter, they <laughs> went up 23 percent, which would have been this number. And then okay. the following quarter, they dropped this percent, which would have been this number. I don't know if anyone's done that, but um, if, if mean, they... I was just going to say, the numbers aren't that surprising to me. I would have expected that Sony would have done a little bit better, at least, just because the PS5 feels more like a next-gen console, whereas the latest Xbox, especially with the update that they did previously, it's just, like, not as, um, I guess, not as different. Yeah, but I think... What's frustrating to me, though, is then hearing people on like podcasts, I listen to a lot of podcasts, oh, no. <laughs> um, take sides, you know what I mean? It's like I, yeah. 
I and the thing is, like, you know, we don't have a very big listener base, but if we did, I would be so worried about what I'm saying right now because I'd be like, well, that means people are going to think I'm a Sony fanboy or a Microsoft yeah, fanboy or something. But I mean, we can qualify all day, right? Like, right. you explained that you've experienced the fanboying with with the big three. Yeah, I did not own my own console until I was like 19 years old. Yeah. And it just happened to be Sony, and I stuck with Sony, but I don't have anything against Xbox aside from I hate the controller. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I go where the games are, and that's why I own an Xbox and a PlayStation and a couple of Switches and a gaming PC. Like, But there's a privilege in that, right? Right. I do think Microsoft has done some really cool stuff, but I, 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 I was listening to podcasts since the launch of both consoles and i was surprised there were some people on certain podcasts i won't name them of course um that were like i don't know like i don't know how sony's gonna compete like microsoft has all this stuff and i'm like again not trying to take sides but i'm just looking at the numbers and i'm like yeah i, I had the opposite impression honestly like i thought sony was if we had to talk in terms of winning because of course these are competing mm -hmm. companies so there is some yeah, competition yeah. there Capitalism. um but if we're going to talk in terms of competition and winning and losing, Sony seems to be, quote unquote, winning. And so it's just frustrating to me because it's like it's this blind fanaticism, you know what I mean? Where it's like you only well, look at the, things. Yeah, right, right. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having your favorites. Yeah. But I guess I just don't look at video games as like, well, who's winning? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I genuinely go where the games are because I'm in this for the games <laughs> yeah and i think you know consoles aren't going to get any cheaper and i don't no. i don't there was a couple of generations ago back in playstation 3 and xbox 360 there was this belief that we're going away from consoles and we're moving to mobile so or cloud-based i know <laughs> it's like look at you know the playstation 5 I, I can't remember who reported this i think it was npd um is the best selling or a fastest selling console of all time um oh. so get out of my face with that consoles are the you know what i mean are are the way of the past get out of my um, face but what i was going to say is like it, you know these we're not going away from them and they're not going to get cheaper if they if they do mm -hmm. get cheaper it's going to be by a small amount even nintendo has had to increase the mm -hmm. price of their hardware which they were historically they yeah. always wanted to stay at that like 200 250 price point range um so even they have had to increase their cost and so when these things continue to be expensive, again, I think a lot of it's going to be coming down to financial insecurity. If you can't afford both consoles, mm -hmm. you kind of have to pick a side and then you will defend that personal insecurity by lashing yeah. out against the other and saying, oh, well, that's yeah. stupid or that's, you know, whatever. So yeah. just another yeah, way that we need to grow up as gamers, I think. Yeah, yeah. I just, if I'm... If, if it's within reach, I like having options. Yeah. Um, you know, like like I have the Xbox One. I sometimes refer to it as my most expensive paperweight. <laughs> but there, there's a reason why I wasn't rushing out to get the new Xbox because just looking at, like, the lineup of games that are probably going to be coming in the next two years, it seems like Sony's offerings, you know, are just a little bit more interesting to me. Yeah, I I am I'm the same. I was a 360 guy back in the 360 days. 
um, over PS3 by far. Mm -hmm. But then the PS4 got me and I was back in the, the Sony ecosystem. And what they did with first party games, I think, was amazing. They had some really great titles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with this generation, I think that's a big part of the reason I just carried on to PS5. I did also get an Xbox Series X. I was very excited to get it. I'm excited to have it. Mm-hmm. And I haven't played it. You know what I mean? Like, there's not How much. How many times to, have you turned it on? Literally once to set it up. <laughs> and I was very excited, but then it, yeah, my excitement yeah. was muted. By the fact that, like you said, it looked exactly like the interface looked exactly yeah. like my, my Xbox One. So yeah. I was like, oh, this new console. And I'm like, I guess I just have to feel excited that I know that it's more powerful. Because other than that, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel any yeah. more flashy or cool or anything. Um, right. I'm absolutely excited for Halo. I'm excited for Perfect Dark. Yes. There's definitely stuff that I'm excited for. Mm-hmm. But even like if Sea of Thieves, if they would introduce private servers which we've been fucking you know yelling about for months if they would just add private servers i would probably be playing my xbox series x because i would love to play sea of thieves without having to worry about trolls but Mm -hmm. that's just one of those things that that would bring me back to the game yeah yeah so all right i did not mean to make that a whole console (laughs) wars discussion um so so what else i know you had a couple things you wanted to uh just a couple small things um keeping with consoles um sony announced uh next month's playstation plus games so we have Wreckfest, we have battlefield 5 which i have to look i'm not sure if i already own that (laughs) um but then uh stranded deep which i thought was interesting because a while ago we were we were chatting about that um how have you felt about the PlayStation Plus lineup so far this year? I has anything surprised you? Because sometimes I look at it like this list, and I'm just like, you know, they're okay. It's hard for me to judge because a lot of times they offer games that I've already bought and I haven't played, yeah. and I'm like, that's cool. Like Control, like they were like, here's Control, and yeah. I was like, oh, that's great. I just bought that for myself for Christmas. So, yep, same. <laughs> with Battlefield, like you said, it's sad. I don't even know. I have two of the recent Battlefields. I probably have that one. I think I have that okay. one. Um, so it's like, I oftentimes I'll get very excited, and I'll like go tell friends, like, hey, go get mm-hmm. this game. It's free. Um. But I don't I don't know how to come at it because like it hasn't been exciting for me because I haven't haven't gotten very many free games that I'm like. Yeah, I was thinking about this model and how I I don't think it serves players like you and me quite the same because it again, like if we're able, if there's a game we're excited about, we tend to buy it at launch. Yeah. But, or like on a sale, like I got Concrete yeah, Genie yeah. on sale in the fall as well. And then they're mm-hmm. like, here's Concrete Genie. I'm like Yep. Cool. Thanks. God damn it. I, don't... <laughs> I mean, honestly, what what's exciting for me usually is that now I have a digital copy of the game because yeah. I buy physical media. I love physical media. Mm-hmm. So I do have to keep popping discs in, um, which is annoying. But when you give me that free download, yoink. Right. Right. Yeah. Actually, I should be thinking about that more because sometimes I like having the physical, but I'm like, but it's so convenient for it to be digital. I might get it digitally anyway. So Yeah. Yep. I mean, even if you see it on deep sale, you know, seeing it for like 10 bucks yeah, or something, yeah. mm-hmm, that's, absolutely. that's a convenience cost. Um, I'm definitely not known for buying multiple copies of the same game. Never. <laughs> 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 you, you have bought games... 
that you're excited for, you'll buy the physical and the digital so that you can download yep. the digital and play it at midnight mm -hmm. and then yeah. also have a physical copy. Um, yep. I, it's pathetic, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I can't, my anxiety won't let me do that because I'll be, the entire time I'll be like, you know, I'm only going to play the one. And like, I do have multiple mm -hmm. copies. I have. I mean, to be fair to myself, this, I don't do that with every it's, single it's game. That's like if rare. I'm excited, right. like I'm ready for this. Like Far Cry yeah. 6 or something like you're like, I know yeah. I want that physical copy, but right. I also want to be able to play it right away. Because mm -hmm. yep. we both had experiences where, you know, companies, retailers will offer release day delivery, release day shipping or whatever. And then, oops, sorry, it's going to be a couple yeah. days late. And sometimes you're like so excited to play a game and get in mm -hmm. a conversation with people. And then they just don't. Or like I've lined up my work just right to be like, here's my open window to just play the game. Yeah. And then like the the physical copies released three days later. It's like, yeah. ugh. <laughs> um, what else? Nintendo added uh, online multiplayer to Super Mario Party, which oh, yeah, is like, that. that's kind of cool. And my first thought was like, oh, I should ask people to play that. I should ask Tab, see if Tab and Tears I want to play that. <laughs> and I was like, but I feel like, Super Mario Party is is that thing that everyone says they like and then no one ever wants to play. I love that series. There have been a couple of stinkers, but mm -hmm. generally speaking, I love that formula. I love the characters and it's just so casual and it's so it's so hard to take it seriously because it's just so casual, says Mr. Competitive. <laughs> well, I OK, I, I like being competitive in a playful way. I'm not competitive in like a toxic kind of kind of shitty way. Um, I think it's fun to be competitive because that like raises the stakes, but yeah. not if you're going to get like aggressive or personal about like insults, playful insults and jabs mm -hmm. and stuff like that, I think are really fun. Yeah. Um, and that's why I think that's that series is so great about. So uh, a perfect example, I will shit talk more when we're playing Mario Party than I will when we're playing Mario Kart because Mario Kart involves so much more skill. So if I shit talk while I'm doing that, I feel like I'm being an asshole because I'm like, oh, yeah, because you're I'm really good really... at it and I'm shit. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I feel like I'm rubbing it in and I'm like, what yeah. you do? And I'm like, no one wants to play with someone like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, if, that's if, right, Joey. If you're, hey, you're saying it like I do that. <laughs> I, I don't do that. So but with Mario Party, it's so random. A lot of it's based on chance. Oh, yeah. At it's the end, random. they hand out these random stars where they're like, you touched more elbows. You get a star. You know what I mean? Like. Um, like, where's that going? <laughs> <laughs> Nintendo, Joey, Nintendo. <laughs> Ooh, which version am I playing? Um, <laughs> the uh, the taboo import. Um, but but it's so random. Mario after dark. <laughs> <laughs> you touched Mario's mushroom four times. Here's a star. Um, that you there was just that just died. That was that like, just. <laughs> I'm just wondering where this episode is really going. <laughs> <laughs> and now we talk about the dissertation. No, oh, so so yeah. So I think it's just so much more casual and kind of chance based that um, it's fun to be kind of competitive and stuff like that. But yeah, um, would you play that online? Like if I was like, hey, let's play that online. See, look at that face. I can see you on the Zoom call. You're <laughs> like, mm. maybe. But then when I look at that, I go, how are we going to communicate? I mean, there is the Nintendo chat, but we'll probably use Discord yeah. or something like that. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I feel like I'd be more likely to play it in person. Yeah. Hey, a couple weeks. There we go. Yeah, you're coming up to visit. 
coming down to visit i guess i should say yeah down what was that other story that you had you mentioned yeah yeah two, so right? um real brief uh cyberpunk 2077 got its uh third major update i think hmm. um or was it the third update oh god let me look at the let me look at the article um it got a new patch 1.22 and it fixes a bunch of like quest glitchiness um apparently there was <laughs> there's that um what's the mission called down down in the street i think and takemura gets like stuck in the docks <laughs> and so like that you know makes it difficult to complete the mission um but anyways so they they did a bunch of like quest fixes fixes but there's also a couple of visual fixes and um also some stability and performance which Honestly, those things interest me more when I see these articles pop up about cyberpunk because when we were playing, I stopped counting after 20 or so crashes. Like yeah. it was very predictable when the game crashed and they one of the items says um, various memory management improvements and other optimizations and that should reduce the number of crashes. So that is good to see because I think we we talked about this briefly. I do want to return to the game, but I'm going to wait until like the PS5 um, version of the game is out there, which supposedly last half of this year, I think, is what they're aiming for. If they hit that, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, if they <laughs> if they hit that. But um, they are still patching it and working on it, which is good to see. Yeah. The memory management thing makes like you said that's that's very interesting because mm. the regularity with which that game crashed that's what i thought yes. i was like it's got to be memory like memory something is filling up and it's just not doing a good job of like parsing out this this data so um yeah hopefully that that fit. i'm still going to expect crashes cuz like i said i was getting crashes with the witcher 3 but if it happens you know 70% less i think that would be a much that would that would be huge yeah <laughs> Yeah. And like I mean, it is nice. Their hours. quick save system yeah. was pretty convenient. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, we'll, 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 we'll keep checking in on that one. <laughs> um, well, the last thing, I mean, so Mortal Kombat came out. I, are you, do you have any interest in that? I'm so, I'm excited to see it. I've been hearing I was really going to ask things. you, is there a way that we could watch it together? Because I'm hesitant, but I'm curious. I, that's, I, that's, I don't know. I, I think. I can imagine both Paul and Amy, we mentioned those friends, friends of the show, mm -hmm. um, that they would probably also be interested. Yeah. So maybe we should get some kind of thing mm. going on. We usually use Netflix Party or yeah. TP as it's now called, I mm -hmm. think, um, to watch stuff we on We might Netflix. have to do the old school, everyone click play. Yeah, <laughs> hit play, go. Um, cause I've I, seen a lot of people shitting on this. But also people being like, let people enjoy what they enjoy. So I, I'm just like, I don't know, like I'm interested. This is one of those things I see both things. I see people being like, it's amazing. It's the best video game ever. And these are people who are pretty critical. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I'm like, I trust them. But then, you know, and, and so I don't know if it's people shitting on it because they've never seen it or they just went into it being like, this is going to be shitty or whatever. Um, but I'm well, very curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was actually having a conversation similar to this with Tirza about some other things, but. I think sometimes it's the popular thing to just shit on something and not be objective in your criticism or critique. Um, and I'm I'm not really into that. <laughs> and uh, you and I were recently kind of touching on this with Resident Evil Village because yeah, yeah. 
I'm worried that that's what's going to happen to that. Like anytime something reaches a certain point of popularity, there's absolutely a market on the internet for trashing that thing. Like mm-hmm. everyone's like, well, oh, well, bait. I know that everyone. Right, exactly. So mm-hmm. hot takes and clickbait. Mm-hmm. like, Which and I think there can be a place for some of that. Yeah. But I don't know. I wish there were more. How do I want to put this? I wish there were more critical conversations about media where people actually had to like make arguments and back up claims and like point to textual stuff. And then I want to see a further defining of like objective versus subjective. Right. And I know that's like the rhetorician in me, right? Like that's the that's the scholar, but <laughs> But but that's the thing is I think like you said, so I think that it's it can be very useful to challenge the prevailing Mm-hmm. you know, opinion on something and, and push back Absolutely. a little bit. That's great. But oftentimes I think it's people with subjective feelings about something that then try to present them in an objective way. So they're like, everyone loves this thing. I hate it. I think it's stupid. So mm-hmm. I'm going to write an article and try to objectively argue why this is bad. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think it's so clear when that happens, when you're just trying to, you know, and your feelings are are fine you can you can not like something yeah i was just gonna say can we please normalize not liking something just because like you and i have have watched movies and i was like you know joey i just i don't really know why but i didn't like it right but there's a difference between that and saying it was fucking shit like (laughs) right if we yeah if we both watched the same movie and you were like yeah i just didn't like it i'd be like i might be a little sad if i really liked it and be like sure okay but if we came out the other end and you were like that movie was terrible and i was like why and you know what i mean like you and you were just like i don't know i didn't like this or i didn't like that and it's like that doesn't make it a bad movie that means like i didn't like this that means that you didn't like it you know Mm -hmm. um and i feel like that's where that online discourse gets caught up is like someone will play a game and be like i didn't like it so therefore it's bad now let me justify it by pointing to the things that i didn't like and it's like that's not a objective like yep. i understand there's an argument that objectivity is impossible to to reach because we're humans and we're subjective by nature but you can make you the can attempt try right exactly <laughs> we, you can use... i think we both talk to our students about that frequently <laughs> yeah absolutely um the last thing i don't really want to linger on this i feel like it's been discussed in many on many you know podcasts and everything else is uh, the creative director of Days Gone, John Garvin, said in a, I think it was a podcast or an, it was an interview, but he said mm-hmm. that that players should buy games at full price if they like them. And again, the discourse has pointed out the the fallacy in that logic. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, I think it's, you know, it's, I understand that frustration of like, well, there's this very vocal group on the internet, minority or not that wants what they want and they want a sequel to the games that they like but you can't like saying that well you should buy games at full price is punishing those people who want that sequel and being like well why didn't you know you shouldn't have bought it on sale but it's like again as everyone keeps pointing out how do you know if you're going to like something so you're just expecting us to blindly buy things at full price games are very expensive yeah, especially okay. So we literally just pulled up the numbers for Sony and Microsoft, which are just two major sections of the market, right? But right. but two sections of the market. I, I this is not an industry that's starved for money, right? 
This is a multi-billion dollar industry. And you're coming from the perspective of like triple, a triple A developer, right? Right. And you're trying to shame people for buying stuff on sale? Which <laughs> I I waited on, on that game. I did buy it and I did like it. I thought it was a really good game. Mm-hmm. But I waited on it. I don't have the money. I, you know, yeah. I'm a poor grad student who loves games and who studies games. So I both want and need to keep up on games I have to and I want to buy a lot of games I just don't have the the, I don't have the money for them they're expensive it requires being savvy sometimes like you know especially since you and I are I think I can say this we're like generalists right because Mm -hmm. we do we have you know a, a slew of consoles and we like having you know options but then we have to be picky right we have to be somewhat selective and like i have like a list on my phone that's like my a list and those are the games that i'm really keeping an eye on and i will probably purchase um but then i have like a secondary list and those are games that i'm looking for sales yeah yeah i uh, so i used to not pre-order games because i was like why like i don't need to give some company my five dollars to to bookmark this game um, and I do still have a problem with certain companies, <laughs> GameStop, um, and their like pre-order practices. Um, but what I do is I, I pre-order games online because I'm like, I know I want that game. So I can set aside the money now. I can I don't have to worry about can I afford it later. If I have the money right, now, right. I pre-order it now. And then like you said, I'll... I'll add the games that I'm not sure about or not sure I can afford to a wish list. And then I just mm-hmm. track them and I see when they go down to a price and I'll be like, yeah. this is a kind of game that I'll buy when it hits $40. But this is a kind of game that I probably won't buy until I get on sale for like 15 or $20, that kind of thing. Um, and if it wasn't for those sales, I would not be able to play the number of games that I can play. So yeah. I thought that comment, you know, aside from its logical issues, just shows an insensitivity to how much money we already sink into this this hobby, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I don't know if I'm going to want um, want a sequel for that thing. You know what I mean? Like, I think the better argument is when people, developers say, if you like it, buy the DLC. That makes yeah, more sense to yeah. me. Well, also, it makes it sound like, well, there's not going to be a sequel, and that's the fault of the consumer. And it's right. like, this is a much more complicated thing than just, right. well, you didn't buy enough full-price copies. Right, exactly. Yeah, you can't ask us just to just be like blind, loyal, yeah. you know, consumers. Like we're we're savvy. We have to be. It's an expensive hobby. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, we're not going to talk about that. And now we're going on and on <laughs> about it. <laughs> All right. So what have you been playing? I have, of course, I have to start with the Resident Evil village castle Mm -hmm. demo so uh, as we mentioned last week capcom is kind of rolling out these demos weekend by weekend um this coming weekend is going to be the castle and the village demo combined um which by the way we didn't mention this in the news but capcom has extended the window for that originally you could only play that within the 24 hours on may 1st or whatever i think it was may 1st um but now they've extended it to eight days seven or eight days or something Mm -hmm. like that basically until launch so yeah that's um, pretty cool yeah but the second half of that demo the castle demo was available this past weekend you watched me play it um Mm -hmm. i made it through probably like one and a half times i would say maybe a little bit more than that that first run was fast man i i was so because i didn't make it through the first demo all the way because i was hesitating a little bit too much and then i got you know i i 
didn't find the one sigil or whatever I was supposed to find quick enough. So I was like, this time I'm like, I got to make it through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to like look around and experience it, but also just trying to get to the end. But I got through it and I think like 18 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. So then it let me go back in and, and start again, um, which was cool. But also thank you Capcom, right? Mm-hmm. For allowing um, the screen share on the demo. Screen share. <laughs> it was cool to watch. So underrated. I love that I feature. Love it. I felt weird when we first started learning about the features for the PS5 and I was like, Joey, I'm so excited about picture in picture yeah. and da 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 And I felt like no one else was excited about it. <laughs> but like the nerd in me that's like, no, I watch people play games all yeah. the time. I was like, that's awesome. Right. I don't and see, I don't watch games, but there are times when I want to share the experience. And when you so when you're mm-hmm. like, you know, can, can I watch you play that? I'm like, fuck, yeah, you know, because I don't want to. You know what I mean? I never want to presume anyone wants to watch me do anything. You know what I mean? That sounds weird. But like, so like I might be excited for a game, but I'm like, ah, no one, no one cares, you know? But when you're like, oh, I'm really interested. I want to watch you play that. I'm like, fuck yeah, that's cool. So I love being able to, to share that. But um, it was beautiful. I think that was my biggest takeaway was that game just is so gorgeous. It's very pretty. Yeah. There's so much detail in the environment and... There's so many ways in which I think the engine, the RE engine, which is a great engine, a beautiful engine, is actually rendering things where in the past there would have had to been a lot of little shortcuts and tricks, like visual tricks mm-hmm. to make something look good at a glance. And I really get the sense that everything, textures and lighting and everything has its own feel and its own look. And I'm just so impressed by the visuals. Uh, in terms of the gameplay, it was, you know, pretty pretty standard there's a new enemy in it so in the first demo there's these i think they're lichens these like werewolf type people mm-hmm. I, I think there's probably like full-on werewolves later um in this one there were these kind of ghoulish things in the basement when you get down there like i i don't even i guess i would call them ghouls but kind of somewhere between a mix between like a zombie and a villager from Resident Evil 4. Like they have weapons, but they're kind of shambling, but they can like have the spurt of, of yeah. quickness to them. Um, but that felt very satisfying. Uh, only a little bit of Lady D. I feel like they, they knew what they were doing because it's, it's basically her walking through. So you get to see her butt. Like that's it. You got to tease. Like, oh, you got yep. tease. I'm like, mommy, <laughs> come back. Um, mommy, come back. Been a fool can see. Anyways. <laughs> Um, (laughs) besides that i played more fallout new vegas so i got back to that it took me a little bit to get back into it and now i'm kind of falling off of it a little bit because as i was mentioning to Mm -hmm. you last night um, i'm playing now on playstation now because my playstation 3 wasn't um or it might be broken i'm not sure and so and it's been hitching a lot now i know playstation network was down and there were some issues with it the last couple of days so maybe that's contributing but it's so frustrating to be trying to play a game and it just keeps hitching and running and like uneven. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of falling off it. I'm kind of, I'm close to the end. Anyway, I hit the level cap. I've done almost all the side quests. So I'm, I'm pretty much um, almost done with it anyway, but, um, but I'm I'm not feeling it as much as I was previously. And Mm -hmm. then we've both been playing a game that you recommended called tender, right? Do you Mm want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Tender is a game that simulates the dating app experience, um, and it definitely focuses on the more <laughs> undesirable aspects of 
of dating or the potential for bad encounters and things like that. Um, what I think is cool about it is just like the interface and how it looks, you know, it's very similar to Tinder and that you swipe, you know, left or right, you get to chat with people, um, and it plays out in real time. So like you might match with someone, but you might not be able to contact them first and you might have to wait like an actual day for them to actually say something to right. you. Um, and of course you can look at people's profiles. Well, they're pretty limited, but you can look at profiles and, um, you know, you can unmatch and go on dates and things like that. Um, I feel somewhat mixed about it. I do like the concept. I like the idea of it. And um, I think that there are some things that the game does really well, but I <laughs> disliked how negative most of it was. And um, I had so many like people that I had matched with, with that I would chat. I would chat with them. And like, I felt like sometimes the dialogue options put me into a corner or it didn't really reflect what I wanted to say. Right. And so that kind of made some of the like dating aspects feel a little off, just like the, the conversation. Um, one example I went, uh, with, uh, I went on a date with a couple and so they were looking for a third. And when we went on the date, they were bickering like almost the entire time. And I was just sitting there like my noodles <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and the options I felt like it didn't really, they weren't as flexible as I wanted them to be. And ultimately what ended up happening, I felt a little terrible, was I like got up and I left. And then after the date, they contacted me and they like, I think they broke up <laughs> because they were so horrible at communication. Yeah. And so I was left there like, I guess we're unmatching, huh? <laughs> yeah. And then ultimately um, I ended up, I guess, completing the game, if if you will, uh, I went out on a date with another group and it actually went surprisingly well. I was like, it's going to turn, it's going to turn because all the other dates kind of went really poorly and it went well. And they contacted me again and they were like, you want to go on a second date and then leave the planet? And I was like, sure. And so it ended fine, but it was, I don't know, so, so much of the experience was disappointing um, because of the interactions, but it's designed to be that way, I think. So, yeah. What do you, what did you think? Yeah, I, I felt similarly when I first started, I was so impressed by the variety. Like they have this really cool, unique art style where mm -hmm. every character's hand, uh, seemingly hand drawn, mm -hmm. um, lots of different like species. Cause essentially you're this human on this alien planet. Um, right. and so each, each person or each, um, individual that you come across as a different uh, species or you know they look very different um, there's like an amoeba that I almost matched with um, she wasn't very interested in me <laughs> but uh, but and I guess that was confusing to me at first too because some of them would be like well my species isn't interested in this or like I'm not mm -hmm. very engaged with this or something and and so at first I didn't think there was enough onboarding because I was so confused at first. I was like, wait, so what's going on? I'm on this planet. And that right. I didn't feel like there was enough clues or context in the beginning to get me to understand what I was doing. So mm -hmm. I just was like, all right, well, I guess I'm just sort of flipping through and like, you know, trying to date. Um, 
But like you said, I think I was really impressed with the creativity. I was really impressed with the premise. And I was really impressed with the representation. There was tons of representation. Mm -hmm. I didn't get any groups, uh, so I'm a little surprised at that. Sounds like you were all over the place with groups. I <laughs> Just the two. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was getting... You know, I saw I saw some ace people in there. I saw some trans people in there. Um, and some of it is tied up into that, into their kind of fictional. And maybe that's a part of it. I, I, I just afterward, I was like, I feel like I, I think this game would be really interesting to analyze because mm -hmm. I was like, how much of this interplanetary interspecies thing is tied up in the representation? Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't really get a good read on it, but I kind of had the same experience of you as like, I'm. I think the premise is really cool. I would be really interested in, in if they took a chance at a sequel and like expanded mm -hmm. on it because I found the same thing. I found some of the discussion um, options to be limited and the game seemed to like almost just predict what I wanted. Like maybe mm -hmm. based on a previous response, it was like, oh, well, then you must want this. So then it would only give me options that. Right. That it like would... locked you in. Right. And I, I didn't love that. So I ended up with my ex in the game only because I, I guess I was sort of confused about what was happening. And then in that we went on a date and in that date, I kind of realized that my ex wanted to get back together. And so I started trying to answer things that I thought made it clear that I didn't want to get back together. And then after the date, she was like, okay, so we're getting back together. And my only options were, basically like yeah or yeah you know what i mean it was like wait wait mm -hmm. wait, wait wait i thought i made it clear i thought i was being right. like distant enough to like make it clear that we're you know and so i i left the game feeling sort of unsatisfied but i think that the idea is really cool and mm -hmm. like i said i i love that indies give us these kinds of experiences because we'd never get them from from bigger studios right, right. so i really appreciate that they took the chance yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I I I feel like we're being maybe a little negative, but yeah. I think that overall it is pretty well made. And it's how much was it on the st like $2 store? Two ninety nine. Like I definitely encourage people to like you know if you're interested in that kind of premise of this like simulation of like the dating experience, like go for it. Like it's two ninety nine. Um, and if they make a sequel. Um, I, I will probably buy it and check it out. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, and part of the negativity on my part came, did come from just not to get too personal, but like I've been single for, I think like three years going on four years mm -hmm. now. And I've been kind of like very hesitantly and not very seriously on these dating apps. Mm -hmm. I have three of them on my phone I very ca I haven't checked them in, in weeks, but like I've been sort of on and off of them kind of experimenting or exploring for months. Right. Um, and part of it is coping with my own past and my own trauma. And this mm -hmm. game sort of touched on some of that, which was not fun. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So for me, a part of it is just like that personal experience. Um, but yeah, like I think it's fine. I, I mean, I think we're just being critical of it, but it's, I, I absolutely, like you said, encourage people to check it out. And that's what I love about indie games. Like mm -hmm. if they're simple in concept like this, 
then small development teams can do them and experiment and make really mm-hmm. interesting things, even if they're not the best, most polished, most fully realized things. Mm-hmm. And they can be cheap and reach a, an audience of people who are interested. So, yeah. And I mean, three people made this. Yeah. I think that's impressive. Like, that's, it's yeah. cool. Yeah. You know? I, I love where the indie market is kind of going and just the variety of experiences and perspectives. And um, to touch back on something that you had mentioned with like the um, the queer representation in the credits, it mentioned that they had like a consultant. And I was right. like, yes, thank you. If this tiny little team could afford a consultant, <clears throat> triple A's, right. what are you doing? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... What else? I know you've been you've been playing more of uh, a lot more of Planet Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I am just it's so chill. The cute little animals, man, like <laughs> this is the perfect game for me, like ending the semester, right. just kind of like decompressing and like just carrying me through to Sunday. Um, I think I've played 57 hours now. <laughs> um, one thing that I kind of want to uh, just sort of highlight is so obviously there's there's the steam workshop right and for you know a, a variety of games there's like user created content i've never really tapped into that i've never really had a need or a desire to or like the the i guess situation to but with this game like okay i have a vision for my zoo but I'm not the most creative person. Like I'm like, I could do that. And then I go to do it and I realize my lack of creativity. And so I was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to check out the workshop. There's so much cool shit that people have made. It's amazing. And I also want to say that in, in playing planet zoo and looking up like YouTube tutorials and looking at the steam workshop stuff. Um, I also turned to Reddit to see if there was a planet zoo, um, subreddit. And of course there is cause it's Reddit. It is such a welcoming, cool space. Like people go on there and they share their exhibits and their builds and stuff like that. Like it reminded me that like there are some nice, wholesome gaming communities out there. And I think that that's that's really awesome. And they don't get talked about as much because, of course, what do we talk about? The toxic. I I think one of the things that's so cool about that, because I experienced a little bit of that with Jurassic World Evolution, is that these games are Sims. And mm-hmm. I think, too, a lot of people who buy them and play them, like when I played Evolution, that was the co- my core focus was the simulation of it. And so, like, yeah. doing, like, accomplishing things, you know, reaching goals and things like that. But for those kind of communities that you're talking about, it's about creativity. It's about after all of that accomplishment, you have all these tools, all this knowledge mm-hmm. and expertise, then you can be creative. And, like, people... And that's what I was touching on before when you were talking about it. Like these games for some people is their game. Like they mm-hmm. play it. That's the only game they play for months and months, if, if not years. Right. And so when I was looking up kind of the same thing, I was looking at videos about Jurassic World Evolution. People were like, on this build, I did this kind of park. And they like just keep making and they're yeah. like, ooh, I want to experiment. Like one of them was like a beach. Um, they made a beach park. So they mm. completely terraformed this one park to make it mostly beach and have beach type dinosaurs and stuff like that. And I was like, wow, that's so different than how I play where I'm very like goal oriented and like, I want to accomplish things, but it's really cool that, like you said, there's friendly welcoming communities. Cause exactly like you said, like we often focus on, which 
absolutely there can be you're going to talk about your dissertation there can be yeah i was just gonna say i set myself up for that (laughs) perfect transition um so there can be toxicity but i think that's what makes it you know that much more um exciting when you find a, a community that doesn't display those kinds of toxic traits well and because they're there and i mean there is like of course a subset of people that are kind of toxic with like yeah. the player um, market that can be manipulated. Um, but on the, the subreddit, at least that I, that I followed um, people are posting their builds and stuff and it's encouraging and it, it, it makes other people be like, Oh, well I'm going to share my thing. And like, I think when you get to like sharing, then you have these stronger bonds of community. Maybe that's like an obvious observation, but <laughs> I, but I, I've mentioned before, like I've been, I've been, I think wanting that. And I think it would be mm-hmm. healthy to find a community mm-hmm. where you felt welcome like that. I used to be part of communities. I've gotten away from them and I just, part of it is like trust issues and stuff like that. But like, yeah, I think it would be cause like you got that, was it a, I don't know if it was a white or albino, but you got that, the draft that you've been after. Right. Mm-hmm. And like. I was excited for you and I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was a place you can be like, hey, guys, I got the draft. I've been trying to work. I've been right, working so right. hard. And everyone would be like, yeah, cool. Awesome. Good job. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm like, I can't give that. I can be like, wow, that's really cool. But like, it's different when it's like a group of people who understand the significance of that thing. Right. So. Mm-hmm. So that's our homework assignment. We have to go out and both find. Got to make new friends. Gotta make new. Hey plans. guys, can I <laughs> can I buy a giraffe with you? <laughs> um, but uh, anything else? Anything else you've been playing? Uh, no, those are the the only two. I imagine this week it'll probably just be Planet Zoo, and then I won't be playing. But pretty soon I will be watching some Resident Evil uh, gameplay. So yeah. I am I'm very excited for that. You don't realize <laughs> how excited I am for that. <laughs> I. I, I think every time you express it, I am a little surprised. I'm like, wait a minute, are they really excited? You know what I mean? Like, um, but Let the record show. <laughs> I'm just going to have to get over the idea that someone's watching me because I, I, I want to just play how I play. I don't want to feel like I'm performing or like, oh, I got to yeah. gotta try to be good. Well, and as I've said before, like if it's going to interrupt you, then... I no, wouldn't. no, no. It, I think because it's you and you know me, I think it'll be different. And that, but yep. it's one of the reasons why, like, I don't know if I could stream because mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure I could, but I am a pretty slow gamer. I like to explore, I like to look at stuff. So, Brittany Brombacher, she actually hosted the um, last two Resident Evil showcases. She's a co host on the What's Good Games mm-hmm. podcast. She's a huge Resident Evil fan. And she has this, this, this kind of joke. They have a running joke on their show about toilet paper because. When she played a demo of the Resident Evil 2 remake, there was this like stack of toilet paper in this hallway in the police mm-hmm. station. And she made up this whole story about like, well, of course, they'd be like, you know, stocking, you know, and she <laughs> she has the same kind of appreciation for background details that I do. So I'm like that. That's where I'm at. I'm like she mentioned in the most recent demo. She was looking for the toilet paper, not meaning that she was looking for toilet, but looking for like meaningful background right, tidbits. Right. And mm-hmm. that's me. And so. As a as someone who would be streaming, I would be super self-conscious about that. Like, people don't want to be, you know, watching me walk around like, oh, look at this picture. Oh, look at this. Look at, look at this. Look at this. That's boring. But, like, for you, if you understand, which you, I think you do, that that's my mm-hmm. play style, then I think, you know, I think we'll yeah, be fine. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to fuck it up. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, 
which one of us should go first? Um, do you want me to go first? I know you you're closer to finish. Like you're you're about done with your dissertation. Yeah. So do you want to? Yeah. Do you, I'll give you the honor then. Do you want to go first or? or <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, my dissertation. Okay. So wait, wait, wait. How how do we want to? How do we want to do this? Well, because okay, we need to explain first, like, what is a dissertation? Yeah. But I feel like in order for you to say, like, what is a dissertation, you almost have to sort of explain, like, well, what is the degree? You know what I mean? Because, right. like, so you – okay, our experience is coming from the humanities. Um, we are uh, in a pretty traditional English program. There are, like, tracks that you can take, but everyone takes, like – kind of a, a mix of classes. So like we've taken a fair number of like lit courses. Mm-hmm. Um, you've taken, I think, some more more film classes than I have. Yeah. But I have taken more red comp classes because that's that's what I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be a red comp teacher and, and scholar, I guess. <laughs> I question the scholar bit a little more every day, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> a red comp um, something. Yeah. So you have your coursework and then – you have to take exams and you get to select your your areas of expertise. So for me, what were they called? Was it just writing and then the other one was rhetoric? Yeah. That's vaguely yeah. what they I were. Think one was yeah. rhetoric and one was composition. That feels a long time ago because um, <laughs> that was – oh, God. Our friend Amy just said January of 2019, 2019, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then once you do that, you've you've like proven that you can – Okay, now you can actually go on and do the thing. And so in order to, you know, get your doctorate, you need to basically show that you have something to offer your field and that you have enough of an understanding of the of the scholarships of the experts within your field. Um, am I doing okay with the description? Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Okay. Um, and so the dissertation is this long text. It's not an article, but it's not a book. It's kind of its own genre. And you present work that is appropriate for like your field um i think for the both of us and i don't want to speak too much for for you but for the both of us um i think that was a little bit more complicated Mm -hmm. because we are coming from this like comp ret sort of background but i'm leaning more into like digital rhetoric maybe butting up to like game studies and then I'll leave you to describe <laughs> yours. Um, but because we're both in this like very traditional English program, um, we don't always fit ne- neatly. <laughs> we're like an odd piece in the puzzle, I guess. Um, but anyways, you have to form a committee and you you pitch a proposal. Usually it's called a prospectus. And that's where you say, hey, this is the thing that I want to do. And then if you get approval, you then go and do the thing. Um, and the dissertation, it can take, I know some people that like breezed right through it. It took them like a year, but for most people, it takes a little bit longer than that, at least. Um, am I missing anything? No, I, I don't think so at all. Um, I, I mean, there was a, pr- a prospectus that you have to give, which is basically a really complicated yeah. advanced proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only step in between exams and the dissertation. So you basically right. have to give a presentation to your committee and your committee is, consists of a director and two readers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically that step, and that's what our friend Amy is actually going through right now. Mm-hmm. She's getting ready to defend her perspective. Yeah. Um, is basically just, you know, as, as her director 
uh, put it to her just just today. Um, it's supposed to be just sort of this conversation between the committee and the dissertation writer, basically kind of making sure that you're like on the right track, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that you have like a good grasp on how you're going to approach this research project because it is a big research project and because you're on your own. Like everything yes. before this is all kind of guided coursework, all that stuff. Once you hit the dissertation, that's on you. And you have a director that you can sort of check in with, but I think people have kind of mixed experiences. Some people are don't have you know have virtually no contact with their director. Some people the director is a little bit too controlling, but that's just one yeah. of those variables. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely different styles um, because even the way that um, Amy's uh, chair was talking about the prospectus is a little bit different than how my chair talked about the right. prospectus. It seemed a little more like I guess formal, yeah. a little more prep work involved. So it it comes down to the style of the people that you're working with. And just their preferences. Um, yeah, the, guess, only, the only other thing I, I would yeah. say is that like the the shorthand that people often use, and I use this, I try to use this with like family members and stuff, but it doesn't mm-hmm. always work, is a dissertation is a book-length research project. Because mm-hmm. like you said, it's not a book technically, yeah. <laughs> but it's about as long as a book. Um, and oftentimes people will turn it into a book. Not everyone. Yeah. Sometimes people will, will pick it apart and, and publish chapters individually. But sometimes mm-hmm. people will shop their dissertation around to publishers who will say, ooh, these five chapters would make a good book. So can you add a chapter or change mm-hmm. this chapter? And like people will adjust it and edit it to make it into a book. So book length research, yeah. research project, I think, is a fair, you know, again, as like shorthand. Yeah, yeah. And if it helps to kind of envision the thing. Um, now, dissertations can vary in length pretty, pretty widely. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to be 200 ish, at least in our field, the ones that I've seen 200 right. to 300 ish pages. I think mine. Oh, God. I think it's like 238 or something like that now. Um, and I'm sure for some people, they're probably going, oh, that's or they would say that that's really short, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, substance over. <laughs> well, mine's zero pages, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but okay, so I guess I'll just give like an overview of the of the of the project. So, sure. my dissertation is looking at um, content moderation on. Twitch, twitch.tv as a form of resistance to toxicity, hate, and just online aggression in general. Um, and so I am only going to share so much about this project just because it's it's currently, you know, an unpublished thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll speak kind of generally. But my, my line of inquiry was just um, kind of formed on a couple of questions. So they included things like, you know, how how do live streamers on Twitch respond to and resist aggression using the provided platform moderation tools? Right. And then another question was um, within the specific case studies, because I have four case studies, how do those streamers respond to aggression? And then what are other strategies that are being invented by the streamers? Um, like what 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 other strategies are they using to moderate uh, um, aggression outside of those platform provided tools. And that's what gets us to this concept because I'm looking at like resistance. So moderation is resistance to just a lot of toxicity in gaming um, and just the internet in in general. Um, so it 
got me to this place of unruly rhetoric. And so for anyone who may be even vaguely interested, I recommend um, this uh, edited collection titled Unruly Rhetorics, Protest, Persuasion, and, and Publics. And that is put together by uh, Alexander, Gerard, and Welch. And I believe the publication date was 2018. And that's a really good edited collection. It brings together various perspectives on unruly rhetoric, on protest, um, and I guess I should probably define unruliness, but unruliness <laughs> is anything that like pushes back. And yeah. quite often it is this like messy form of rhetoric. It might take the form of of mocking the aggressor, of of joking, of protesting, of being of being loud, of being noisy, of being bold, um, and pushing back against these ideals of civility, which at least in the West are quite often used to silence the people who are being targeted, the people who are being oppressed. Um, so I don't know if, if you've ever spent time online and seen some unruliness kind of bubbling up, you might see people who go, oh, well, you you shouldn't name call you 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 shouldn't use expletives you you should take the time to educate the person who's targeting you there's a better and, way to go about it that's what they that's right what I was right like. um and so i'm like well fuck that <laughs> <laughs> um what are these what are these streamers doing what are they inventing what creative ways are they are they pushing back against the shit that that is targeting them um, and so through those four case studies, and not not all of those streamers were necessarily unruly or consistently unruly, but they each had different ways of moderating and just like building community and supporting that community and reinforcing boundaries within their communities. Um, and so I was highlighting their moderation strategies and tactics and looking at moments of unruliness and how it served those communities, how it served the streamer and like a little bit of like, well, what effect did that have on the aggression that would find its way into those, um, into those Twitch channels? Um, I'm debating how much more to to actually say about it do you do you have a question or <laughs> well, not a question necessarily but i do want to throw in so you and i read a book called haters i don't remember the subtitle mm -hmm. by bailey poland yes and great book um mm -hmm. she's a, a great scholar i really like her yes um but one of the things in that book was one of the things in that book or that that book was sort of pushing back against was the idea about like don't feed the trolls because mm -hmm. you know if you've been on the internet like you said going back to the 90s probably maybe even further but like going back to like list serves and message board bbs's mm -hmm. and things like that um trolls have been around in existence on the internet for a very long time mm -hmm. and one of the kind of mantras that people would always say is like don't feed the trolls don't give them attention right. you're only making it worse and it's like after some number of years you might even say decades, we realized that that wasn't effective, right? Yeah. So like, especially in, in such a dynamic environment like Twitch, where yes. it's ongoing and it's affecting other people, mm -hmm. you have to adapt, right? You can't just ignore the trolls. They still come in. They still do it, right? So um, is that, do you think that was part of it? Like that, not not just that book, but that idea of like pushing back against the don't feed the trolls thing? I guess I did turn that into a question. I didn't mean it to be, but I didn't want to assume. <laughs> well, I feel like that's part of what this this project or like your mindset to start with. Was. Like where it came from? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because for me, like I knew going into the dissertation, like I needed to pick something 
that I was, I mean, it's cliche, but that I was passionate about that would take me through probably at least two years of research. Um, and I needed something that would like sustain me for that time. And so I knew it would need to be something that was tied to um, digital media and like gaming. And, and with the unruliness that really struck me because I hear the message and I, I witness the message of be polite, think of other people, think of the greater good, right. you know, you should educate. I, I hear that and I, I see that all the time and it doesn't work and it puts such a such a weight, such a burden on the individuals who are being targeted. And usually they're they're targeted more than once. Right. We're talking about ongoing aggression, harassment, toxicity, hate. Why should they have to put up with that just because you don't like that they decided to clap back? Right. You know, and that maybe their response was a little bit messy, a little bit unruly. Like we're more critical of the targeted's response than we are of the aggressors. And I think that there is a lot of value in being unruly. Now, obviously, <laughs> we don't have time for this, but you really have to pick apart like the unruliness is always tied to some context. And within that context, there's going to be any number of moving parts. And so being unruly in one instance is not necessarily going to be as effective in another. Like it's very, it's very situational and it completely depends on who are the people who are involved? What are the messages? Who are the witnesses? What is the platform? All of that stuff. But I think that we should be looking to alternatives outside of, we'll just be polite. A politeness, <laughs> trolls can take advantage of politeness. Now, I, I actually have a problem with the term troll because I think it's used to, it's used as a very wide term. Mm -hmm. And because of how people view that term in general, I think people use troll to dismiss what really should be labeled as like Harassment. aggression yeah. and hate. And not just like playful, oh, I'm trying to get a rise out of you. And I think there is some crossover, of course. But um, yeah, I, I, I've i seen a lot of people dismiss behavior of like, oh, they're just a troll or oh, they're just young. And it's like that it still has an effect on someone. Right. Though. It doesn't matter the person's age. And sometimes it doesn't matter their intent. What did it mean to the person who had that horrible thing flung at them? I remember getting into a debate in our in, in a digital rhetoric class that I had here at NIU <laughs> as a student um, because mm -hmm. the definite we, we were trying to get at the definition of troll. Mm -hmm. And I have a very specific definition, which I think is probably pretty accurate. But the the meaning of that word, like many, have has become diluted by people coming mm -hmm. in and trying to co-opt it and not really understanding what it is. And so those people conflate troll with anyone doing anything antagonistic on the Internet. But my right. argument was like, no, there's a difference. When you're specifically harassing someone with targeted harassment, that's not trolling. That's harassment or assault or whatever it yeah. is. You know what I mean? That when person is a harasser or that person is an aggressor right like call it what it is but the person i was arguing with kept trying to give these examples of like oh well but if someone does this then it's trolling and i'm like no that's doxing like that's there's very right you know what i mean right. like that's not that is not trolling that's being aggressive trolling like you said in its base form there's a bit of playfulness you're trying to get a rise out of someone but it doesn't necessarily have to be aggressive or antagonistic or anything like that um and so, yeah, it's just like you said, it's not it's it's become a, a not very useful term because 
Right. And I like we both work with language. (laughs) We understand that words change. I just don't like that even in some scholarship, troll is used. And I'm like, no, you should be more pointed than that. Like that is aggression. So that person is an aggressor. Like, let's not. Just be like, oh, ha ha, they're just joking. Like, right, because no. then they get to use that language. The, tr- the yeah. quote unquote, I'm just trolls. a troll. Right, oh, I'm just, I was trolling. just trolling. I'm just trolling. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a Everyone racist. I'm it. just a. Right, no. This is the same no. as this other behavior that's not quite so. You right. Know. So call out the bullshit for what it is. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm finalizing my dissertation now, um, but I, I got to the acknowledgments and I was like, I don't really know. Uh, what to put here and so i think i'm just gonna put like to all the people who are clapping back on the internet (laughs) that's awesome you know um because i think it's important um yeah and i I get into a lot more than obviously what i've what i've discussed here but where i'm at with the dissertation now i've gone through the chapters have gone through multiple rounds of revision um i'm finalizing some edits on the whole document which is kind of cool i have to say i don't don't know how you're going to write your dissertation but i wrote each chapter in like separate documents just so i could keep stuff stuff straight and when i combined it all and you see it as like this full thing it's like whoa you know i still think some of it's like research project yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's impressive man um but i have my defense date set up for uh mid-june of this year so i'm both anxious and excited about that, but I am very glad that the end is in sight. Um, you know, you and I have both had multiple conversations about like what the future may hold, especially within like the academic context. But um, I'm just glad to like have this big thing kind of lining up and yeah. like it's almost done. So it's the big thing too. You know what I mean? Like I have no mm-hmm. reason. I think you would agree with this, even though I know you're still kind of nervous and it's impossible to not be. Mm-hmm. But like, there's no reason to think that you're not going to pass this, you know? Right. And so what's so exciting about this process is when you do pass, because like the way that it works is you give your defense, which is in the form of a presentation. So you introduce mm-hmm. the project, you talk about your like key findings and things like that and your conclusions and then your um, technically speaking, you, both your committee and anyone present can ask you questions. Yep. So you field some questions and then they... That's not intimidating. <laughs> right. And then they dismiss you temporarily yep. while they discuss whether or not And you... this is virtual, so I'm going to have to leave the call right. <laughs> and then wait for them to call me back. <laughs> and, but, and, but, and so it is sort of sad, but the exciting part of that is that when, when you get called back in, oftentimes the way it goes, it'll say, congratulations, dr london you know or doctor whatever Mm -hmm. and um so that's exciting but it it is a little sad that it's going to be virtual so you won't get that like kind of the physical face-to-face kind of congratulations doctor thing but yeah yeah that's true i i haven't really thought about like that part of the process too much um it feels like there's enough distance between like the end of the semester right now and like june yeah like i'm gonna get part way through summer and then i can start you know sweating over it so (laughs) before okay so we've moved away from the your dissertation to more of kind of the process stuff but i do want to go back i have two two questions that i thought of as you were talking Mm -hmm. one is like can you speak to both in your research and in your own personal experience if there has been a trend toward more unruly rhetoric i am on twitch not nearly as much as you i'm kind of very casually on twitch 
and I feel like there's been a rise, but have you noticed, do you think it's becoming more common for streamers, particularly those who are usually more targeted to clapback? Yes. Now, again, even though I've been following Twitch for, I don't know, six, seven, eight, however many years, you can only ever see like a segment of Twitch. Like I follow hundreds of channels, but there are thousands upon thousands of channels. Right. But within that context and within just the, the time that I have spent on Twitch and seeing the discourse from Twitch bleed over to other platforms like Twitter and Reddit and Facebook and whatever. um, I do think that there is more unruliness. I think it has become somewhat more acceptable as like a form of entertainment because some people are like really talented and just like they have the right personality. Mm -hmm. And I think they fostered the right community where they can be like searingly witty Mm -hmm. and their community's like, yeah, get them, you know? Um, and people will take clips, the, the, the streamer themselves will take a clip of their, like, roasting the shit out of someone and then repurpose it on Twitter because it, it reinforces boundaries and what's acceptable. And it also puts that bad behavior on blast and people think it's entertaining. Um, so I do think that there's probably more of it than even say three, five years ago. Uh, but also this is such a fast moving space. You know, I don't know how you would actually like track it other than just like, that's my subjective view on it. Yeah. I I think that that idea of them repurposing that and like putting it out there uh, and putting it on blast is like doing the opposite of, so at some point you and I had a discussion about how the clips feature on mm-hmm. Twitch is used as a as yes. a form of harassment like harassers or trolls or aggressors whoever will watch for any instance that they can take out of context make a clip mm-hmm. out of it and then share that widely and so yep. i feel like this is a response to that being like all right well then i'll do the same i'll take your nasty behavior and you don't even you don't get to to respond i'm taking i'm yoinking it out of context right. and like right. My other question. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, and quite often the people that I see posting to Twitter, you know, they'll do like a longer video. Maybe it's still only like a minute in length, but they have the ability and the skill or the people to lean on to like edit it and make it like really neatly packaged and flashy. And it's, it's going to be yeah. better than anything the aggressor can do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if the aggressor does it in response, just tries to do something in response, then you know, it's, it's, I think sometimes look down on like, oh, you, you can't take it. Like you're, it's almost yeah. like a reversal mm-hmm. of that. Like you can't take a joke kind of thing, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's some really interesting, interesting power dynamics for sure. So my follow-up question then is seeing, cause I suspected that would probably be your answer. I, I didn't know this, this wasn't really like a planned conversation, but I kind of got <laughs> that sense because of my mm-hmm. own, again, my own limited experience was that I've seen more of it and it seems to be a way like people seem to gain reputation and popularity in part because of that that kind of response. Mm-hmm. So do you find hope in that? You know what I mean? Like for such a long time, I think that that chorus of don't feed the trolls, don't feed the trolls, don't engage with them. There's not a lot of hope in that. There's basically just, you know, cross your fingers and hope they go away. But I think right. seeing people not only clap back, but seeing such a positive response to it in many different formats. Cause like you said, they might take that clip from Twitch and post it on Twitter or Instagram and get mm-hmm. a different audience to like jump on and be like, yeah, screw that guy or whatever. And it's not always positive to be, you know, yeah. 
completely honest. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it's informational. It's like, here's what this behavior, here's why this behavior but, is But even the response to the clapping back is not always the most oh, positive. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, it depends on, eh, yeah, it depends on a whole lot of stuff. But do you find but, hope in it? Like, it seems like it would be yeah. something that would be sort of exciting or something that would that would be like, things are changing for the better, finally. I do. Um uh, <laughs> we 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 don't have time for a full blown conversation, but again, going back to the civility thing, like there's, I can think of so many examples in my own life, just completely outside of gaming, just growing up, the idea that you know I was I was raised as a girl, and so there were all these expectations that were being placed on me, and you couldn't clap back. If you did, mm. you know, you'd be in shit, right? Like your parents would. <laughs> ground you or whatever but when we broaden that out to just like society's expectations i think anytime that we clap back anytime that we have protest when we push back when we make our voices heard i think that that does or at least i hope that it does elicit some change like it has to be better than just sitting there and taking it and one of the things that i i recently wrote about in my conclusion was like i want scholars to speak up and speak out at the very least you should be bringing attention to the people that are that are clapping back if it's done so in a public Mm -hmm. way of course because we have to be aware of ethics um but there's also a privilege right like who has the privilege to speak out and clap back and still be safe right right um but some people are saying you know what maybe this will bring more negativity to me but i do still have to stand up for myself so i think the ability to clap back, especially if you look at a platform like TikTok, there's so many more voices that I see on that platform than I've seen on any other platform. Like people coming from so many just like walks of life and cultures like that to me is incredible. And I do I do find hope in that. Yeah. And, and it's 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 somewhat sad or unfortunate to think that there are a lot of people that probably entered these spaces and were sort of chased away because, like you said, they didn't have, mm-hmm. they didn't feel safe clapping back. But my yeah. hope is, I, I'm also hopeful because I'm hoping that, like you said, when attention is brought to some of these people who are doing it and doing it really well, some of those kind of smaller, more vulnerable creators will will feel like, okay, well, if, if I don't have that same voice or following or privilege or whatever, at least maybe I'll have an audience that will support me, you know? So I think that's really And the cool. other thing is by at the very least talking about the, the, the <laughs> unruliness, the messy rhetoric, it is exposing people to other rhetorical options that they may not have considered. Yeah. And I think that is important too. Well, I'm really excited for you to defend. I'm excited to congratulate yeah. <laughs> you when you pass. I'm so confident uh-huh. that you will. Um, and I think that your dissertation is not only great for what it's, accomplishing or what it's going to accomplish but i think it's starting so many interesting conversations that i can't wait to see you develop in the future so oh thank you not a problem the most humble hosts here so (laughs) (laughs) okay all right sorry go ahead wow i was gonna say start talking jesus i was gonna say start talking (laughs) (laughs) you were gonna say all right well start talking (laughs) Um, so my dissertation, I am in a very different stage. I'm in the beginning stage, which we started at the same time, I think, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely behind. So part of the process, and we won't go, we won't go into too much, but, um, if you are, if you've seen academic Twitter, 
um, part <laughs> of the process of getting a PhD is losing your mind. Um, uh-huh. So for about a year, I did that. And I had um, a lot of struggles with mental illness and um, personal issues and things like that. So I got I, I pretty much made, you know, good progress. I defended my prospectus and everything. Mm-hmm. And then COVID happened and all this other stuff happened. And so I haven't really touched it for about a year, but I'm getting back on on the train now. Um, but let me let me just des- describe that's just again, I, that's more of an aside just I, I do think that it's important to not gloss over some of the troubles it, or issues that happen. It's with- important to highlight different paths. I mean, yeah. I it, it doesn't mean anything that our paths diverged. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't right. it doesn't put more or less value on either of ours work. I think for me, be, in part because of the pandemic, the dissertation was one thing that I had control over. Right. And so my mindset was to plow through it, but that's not going to work for everyone. And I think in part because of that, my dissertation is not what I want it to be, frankly, but you know, this is dissertating in a pandemic. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, that's one of the things too, is that, and it doesn't seem like it's just our department. There's just not a lot of guidance when, when new students come in. I think there's just this expectation that, well, you're a, you're a PhD student or a candidate now, you'll figure it out. Um, but then when you look to other academics from other universities, they're like, well, yeah, we don't know either. Like we've had to figure it out too. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so like when you, when you come in, they, they're like, well, the expectation is five years, you know, but part of that's tied up in funding. Part of that's tied up in them wanting to use you for labor to be first year composition instructors for Mm -hmm. incredibly underpaid prices, but let's not get Mm -hmm. into that. Um, And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of like unclear expectation and then you don't know if you're meeting expectations and you always feel like you're not. Um, And so, yeah, like you said, I think it's important to highlight that sometimes it can be a struggle. Everyone has different paths through academia and PhD programs. And mine definitely had a pretty big, pretty big road bump. So, um, but all the way going all the way back to probably 2018 or 19, um, you and I, you were still living in the area. You're living back in Michigan now. Mm-hmm. And we would have these discussions at Culver's. So Culver's is this local burger place. Mm-hmm. And we would go there after class. We'd have evening classes that go until 9 p.m. And we'd be like, let's go to Culver's and get a burger and a shake or something. And we would just have these conversations about class or about, you know, we just gossip or these whatever. some of the best conversations, by the right. way. Right. <laughs> but they were so good and they were so important for developing our ideas because we would have these ideas from class. And sometimes when you leave a class, especially like a three-hour class where you go over a lot, you're kind of buzzing and you like... Mm-hmm have these ideas, but you don't have any like, you know, outlet for them. So we would have these really great conversations. And one of the conversations that we had, and I remember, I think it was I was taking a course on American literature. And I want to say we were covering Moby Dick, which is very, very, well, not very because of the, the whaling industry, but pretty far removed from Japanese video games. But I was thinking at the time about culture. So I think a lot about culture when I take lit classes. I think professors get really annoyed because I ask them I ask them questions about historical context and culture and things like that. Because all, all to you have me, to do is say professors get annoyed. I ask questions <laughs> <laughs> because I think they want questions uh, that are a little bit more text oriented. Yeah. Um, but I'm always so interested in well, what impact did this novel have, or what were the influences on this novel? Right. Right. Um, 
And so I was thinking about it as we were talking about Moby Dick, about the impact of this this book at the time or the impact of whaling culture on culture and all this kind of all these things. And I started thinking they started mixing with the conversation that you and I had had about dissertations and like topics and video games. And I was walking. I literally remember leaving class, going to my car to go meet you or to pick. I don't know. I I was going to walk to meet you to go to my car to go to Culver's. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking about whaling and fishing and stuff. And I was like, you know, it's funny because Japanese games have fishing minigames like that's one of those like staples of the japanese rpg genre Mm -hmm. is the fishing minigame and i was like yeah that's so funny and i was going through all the games in my mind i'm like legend of zelda ocarina of time and suikoden 2 and um uh final fantasy like i was going through all these examples in my mind i was like that's just so funny how it's such such a a japanese thing and then i was like wait a minute that that says something about japanese culture there's something there like Mm -hmm. That's one of those minor things that we sort of gloss over. And if you have played Japanese games, especially Japanese RPGs, you know that it's like a thing. In the Yakuza games, you can fish, you can catch sharks. Games that are heavily influenced by Japanese culture, like Stardew Valley, there's fishing mini games. So I was like, that's a thing. But we don't really give a lot of time or thought to, well, what does this mean? Why is this important? And so then I remember meeting up with you and sort of excitedly relaying this and being like i think this is what i want to do my dissertation on not just fishing minigames but how japanese video games both display and engage with japanese culture because these are global texts they're not you know they're not created some of them are specifically created for japanese audiences and then exported but some of them are created with a global audience in mind and so these developers are creating video games creating these cultural artifacts and they're displaying Japanese culture, regardless of whether or not Japanese culture is actually, you know, obviously on display in this game or implicitly mm-hmm. on display in this game. And so I thought, okay, well, that's what I want to do. I want to look at Japanese video games. I want to find the ways in which they display or evoke Japanese culture. And I want to talk about why that's important and why video games can be used to do just that, to reach a global market and to display something like national identity, you know, in an, in a subversive way. So um, I brought that idea to my, my dissertation director and she was like, yeah, that's great. You know, kind of run with it. Um, and so then eventually my, my prospectus was a little bit too broad in scope. At least that, that was what my uh, committee said. And I pushed back a little bit because um, I had two ideas. Number one, I wanted to look at Japanese video games as a whole and look at a broad sample of Japanese video games and say, what makes a Japanese video game Japanese? Because in the reading that I had done to that point, um, up to and including uh, Mia Consalvo's really great book, Atari to Zelda, Japan's Video Games in a Global Context, um, much of the scholarship about video games and even just kind of casual journalistic writing about video game, Japanese video games seems to seems to avoid the idea of like unique Japanese-ness about video games. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the literature talks about cultural odorlessness of Japanese video games because for a long time, Mm -hmm. companies like Nintendo would try to scrub their games of Japanese culture because they wanted them to be global. So Super Mm -hmm. Mario Brothers, they took out as many Japanese cues or ideas that that would make it seem, um, you know, 
too foreign or too quote unquote weird for for foreign audiences. Um, and many Japanese games did that. They tried to make they tried to use very fantastical settings, Final Fantasy kind of games, um, Dragon Quest games, where they're palatable to Western audiences. But I what I argue was that there's still markers of Japanese cultures in, in that in those games. They're being made by Japanese people. Um, Japanese culture is going to come through in some way. So I wanted to look at a broad range of Japanese games going back, you know, to the 1980s, essentially, um, to now and say, what are the similarities? What makes a Japanese game a Japanese game? Because, again, that's something that's been avoided. And then the other thing I wanted to do was look at um, some case studies, some specific video games and talk about how in detail how they display some of these shared Japanese characteristics. So I want to look at the broad scope of here's what here's what many Japanese games have in common. Here are these elements that are common through many of them. Uh, and then here's where we see that in these specific games. So I wanted to track like a bunch of different Japanese games that I've played throughout my life and, and through in particular the last three years specifically for this project. And then I wanted to have chapters on case studies. And the case studies I wanted to do was one chapter I wanted to be about Japanese games that are set in Japan and actually display realistic Japanese culture. And for that, I wanted to look at uh, the Persona series and the Yakuza series. They both have real Japanese settings, real Japanese food and music and hobbies and activities and everything like that. Um, and then the other chapter I wanted to be about Japanese video games that showcased Japanese culture, but in Western settings. So specifically using Western, um, settings and characters, and yet still they're very Japanese. And so I wanted to look at the Resident Evil series and the, um, and, uh, Death Stranding by Hideo Kojima. Mm, Okay. And I fought for... The broad look, the broad scope look of I want to come up with a, a definition of Japanese games, um, and I, they they allowed me to keep that, but I had to cut down my chapters on my uh, my um, case studies to one game per chapter. So I had to cut Resident um. Evil from the one chapter. So that chapter is just going to look at Death Stranding, uh, okay. and then the other chapter I had to cut the Yakuza series, which I'm kind of grateful for because. There are a lot of games in that series, and I bought them all <laughs> yep. with the intent of playing them. Um, but I'm just sticking to the Persona series, which is fine because I'm more familiar with that series, anyways. But um, the so reason you're going to look at I, the whole Persona series, uh, everything after Persona Three, because Persona okay. One and Two were made, um, they're not as unified as Three, Four, and Five. Three, Four, and Five have a very specific style, and um, feel to them it's it's what i would call like the modern persona era starts with persona 3 and they were the ones that were more specifically pushed in the west and like developed to be more marketable at a global level so so i only look at persona 3 4 5 the dancing games royal stuff like that um but the reason so so the reason i think it's important is because like i said i think it shows that this is not an explicit or explicit or implicit thing. We can look at games that are quote unquote culturally odorless all we want, but there's culture there. And I, the reason that I think Hideo Kojima's Death Stranding is so perfect for that is because it's set in a post-apocalyptic version of America. It's starring 
a lot of Western actors. It's starring a, a famous American actor, Norman Reedus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got lots of, it has like a famous French actress, um, other American actor, actors. I can't remember what, um, oh, the one actor, I think he's German. I can't, I can't, I can't even remember his name at this point. Um, but, but it's mostly Western actors in these roles and it's the whole story is about America being destroyed by this mysterious force. Now that's taking some very specific elements and visuals of Japanese games that we are used to in Japanese media, like the destruction of Tokyo, the destruction of Japan because of nuclear weapons or giant monsters. And it's relocating that to America and it's making it a very Western oriented um, thing, which is not surprising getting given um, the Metal Gear Solid series made by Hideo Kojima, which is very anti-nuclear and very American-centric. But it shows, I think, that, again, you can scrub Japanese culture. There's no depiction of Japanese culture in these games. It's all Western, right? But it's still very much leaning into these ja- these strongly Japanese cultural uh, images and culture and messages Um and so part of it is is that's all the kind of study part of it. But overall, my point is that not only is it a thing, it's happening. This is how mm-hmm. nations use art and culture to spread national identity and national culture to the globe. Um, but also that it's it's something that can be done consciously. It's not always done consciously. You know, this is right. a it's a capitalistic venture, right? But like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from there you can then look at, well, what about an emerging market like Poland or the Netherlands with these video game markets that are becoming more and more lucrative and more popular? Mm-hmm. Um, how do companies like CD Projekt Red, you know, show Polish or European culture in their video games? Because they do, you know, and, and how do American games, what are we saying to the world with our video games? So I think it's something that is not only there and doesn't get enough study, but um, I think it, it can be greatly expanded on. Rachel Hutchinson wrote a book called Japanese Culture Through Video Games. And when I saw that, it's very recent. It was published in 2000, I think late 2019, maybe okay. 2020. Um, when I saw that, I had a little bit of like, at first I was very excited. I was like, that sounds exactly like my dissertation. And then I had that moment where your stomach drops and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> yep, that sounds exactly like my dissertation. <laughs> but she doesn't quite get at the rhetorical component of it, I guess, at the global level and how this can be a conscious choice. So one of the things I'm looking at is how does the Japanese government fund or encourage these kinds of projects which i have found some that they do there's Mm -hmm. a a, an an initiative called the japanese or japan cool initiative where japan the japanese government gives funding to programs that spreads japanese culture but the problem is a lot of that focus has been on things other than video games so uh, one of the texts that was really important was i feel like i'm jumping all over the place now but um, was the Cambridge Guide to, or the Cambridge Companion to Modern Japanese Culture, which was published in 2009. Now, let me say that again. The Cambridge Companion to Modern Japanese Culture. <laughs> when I got that, I was like, great, this will provide some really nice context about video games as Japanese cultural artifacts. There's virtually no mention of Jap- or video games in this Companion to Modern Japanese Culture. Wow. I, and this is 2009. This is like... 
Xbox 360, PlayStation 3 era, mm-hmm. video games are hugely successful, you know, global phenomenon at yeah. that point. There's no denying that in 2009, Japanese video games weren't a huge part of their culture. And so I'm like, why? How is this being ignored? You know, so I definitely think there's a place for it. I think um, we know. <laughs> yeah. Why. But yeah. Right. Um, I mean, they talk about so many different kinds of culture in there. Political culture, school culture, work culture, family culture. <laughs> food culture, all these different, and I'm like, where's the video games, you know? So it made me very excited to see Rachel Hutchinson's um, book, and one of her calls and her conclusion is is for my dissertation, essentially. It's, it's like, we need to continue to study this. We need to look at the ways in which Japanese games are, um, again, sort of presenting culture on this global stage. Mm-hmm. And so I've been sort of reinvigorated by not only finishing that that book, but also just... Um, seeing the value in it because because I think one of the things that seems pretty common I'm just going to speak from my own perspective but I think I've seen other people echo this is you come up with this an idea for a dissertation and you come up for why you think it's important and interesting for your prospectus and then you defend it and then all that doubt starts seeping back in and you're like but is it really important is it does anyone really care about this is this going to be useful and I'm getting back to that point where I'm starting to feel that energy again and feel hyped about it and feel like it's something that's worth studying so uh, all right i'll stop i'll stop rambling but that's kind of my dissertation in a nutshell (laughs) (laughs) i think it's really interesting especially when you get into things like that um that initiative the cool initiative yeah because that's like direct influence of like this product that is going to go out to a global market yeah and I've, i've been looking through some of the documents the actual government initiative documents um, and some of them are, there's not as many as I would have expected that give money to development of games, but there's game related stuff. There's a whole okay. part where they gave a grant, they gave this pretty big grant to cosplayers to cosplay video game characters, Oh, interesting. You know, stuff like that. So, and I'm sure there's more than that, but I, I am also kind of looking at, you know, are there any initiatives that talk about the explicit the explicit depiction of Japanese culture, because there's been a shift in Japanese games where yes, once upon a time they were quote unquote odorless or they were made to be very fantastical, very homogenous and like un-Japanese. But now we are seeing more games that are leaning into Japanese culture. Again, persona games, the Yakuza games, there's lots of really kind of quirky quote unquote quirky Um, and bizarre Japanese games that are coming out more dating sims and things like that so we're seeing more of a push now is that just because of you know the market and more people are buying stuff like that or is that because of that initiative where they're like okay well let's more explicitly showcase our culture because Mm -hmm. I I think we start seeing that shift in Japanese games where they're more explicit about Japanese culture around 2010 guess what? That's about the time that that initiative came out. So I have to think that there's okay. a relationship there. I need to do more digging on that. But um, but yeah, so that's that's my uh, that's my dissertation. Well, that is very cool. And I I can't wait to see what you do with your analysis with um, Persona, especially because I think that franchise is really interesting. 
I have thousands of screenshots. I literally have over 3,000 <laughs> screenshots of... Because anytime uh, I saw something that was any, like, cultural, I saw they were talking about food, they were talking right, about school, right. they were talking about religion or whatever. I was like, screenshots, screenshots, screenshots. So I, I have so much to dig through. The, uh, I guess the sadistic side of me is kind of eager for you to, like, dive into that because I've had my struggles with a dissertation. Now I'm ready <laughs> to see someone else. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have to be thorough. I don't have to go through every screenshot. I probably right. just have to go through enough to um, pull out interesting examples. Just but, get like a baseline. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's I have that scheduled for uh, the month of June. So this okay. month and next month, I'm finishing up with reading, and then June is data data sorting. So Very uh, nice. maybe I'll report back when I start pulling interesting stuff out of there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. And thank you for listening as drone on about our our dissertations. <laughs> um, obviously, if you have anything uh, interesting, you have any questions or you want to reach out about academia or the dissertation process, you can reach us at prettypixelspodcast at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to be doing a retrospective for Resident Evil because the week after is the release date for Resident Evil Village, which I'm mm-hmm. very excited about. So we'll be covering, we're not going to go into like an in-depth history, just covering kind of the general storyline of Resident Evil, some of the major releases. Um, I'll talk a little bit about my own personal experience with it. Uh, and then, of course, the week after we'll be covering covering the release in detail, every inch yeah. of Lady D. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you just, uh, you were excited for it, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can reach me at on Twitter at Losperman. And until next week, thank you again so much for listening. Bye. <laughs>